Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. I only have one question. Do you think I deserve your full attention? That's what I like to hear. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Script to Screen. Today we're going to be doing a bonus podcast episode on the newest offerings from Disney Plus, which launched on Tuesday, November 12th, and Netflix's The King. So let's get started talking about uh, Disney Plus. Disney Plus uh, just launched today. It's Disney's official streaming service. It includes they're pretty much their entire catalog uh, without a few things that they already have with other streaming services like Netflix, for example, like Star Wars Last Jedi and I think Coco uh, and a lot of their newest releases that they still have on Netflix. But for the majority, a, a lot of their stuff is is going to be on Disney+. Plus. But today we're going to be talking about uh, their original Disney Plus exclusive items that you can't get anywhere else except for Disney+, Plus, which comes at a $6.99 a month price tag. Uh, so there, this includes a, a few things. Uh, a lot of these are original shows. One of them is a, is a remake called of Lady and the Tramp, which from starring Tessa Thompson and Justin Theroux as the titular Lady and Tramp. Um, this is pretty much, compared to The Lion King, which came out earlier this year, probably a superior movie as far as just the aesthetics go, just because The Lion King doesn't have real animals and The Lady and the Tramp does. Um, but again, I think The Lady and the Tramp has a lot of tribbles that are similar to these live-action remakes in that it's just a, a, a reheated story of something that's already come out in the past that doesn't really have anything new or interesting to say. But I did enjoy the live action animal aspect of it but again it's it's an hour and 45 minute long movie which you start to feel the length when it comes from source material or the original that's only like an hour and a tw- hour and 20 minutes long so you really start to feel the length because there's just not really much going on um, because a minute an hour and 20 minute long story fits probably in an hour and 20 minutes and when you start to expand that further it just ends up kind of falling apart um, there's just not much to, to grasp onto. There's some, there's some funny bits, but it's you're not really sure what it's trying to go for. Like, is it trying to just be cute with cute babies and cute dogs and cute puppies and other animals? Or is it trying to be comedy? Cause there's some comedy elements, but it don't, they don't seem to be super consistent throughout or even the dramatic elements. It seems to, to seems very similar to toy story in the kind of you get replaced uh, by your human owners sort of idea behind it, but it doesn't really have the the moving elements, plot elements that Toy Story has. It just has very basic structure. It doesn't really ha- seem to have any discernible purpose. Uh, so I guess on the whole, it's it's not really worth your time. I mean, if you're, if you're looking at this as like, man, I'm going to get Disney plus to watch Lady and the Tramp, the live action. Cause I have to see all these Disney live action remakes. It's definitely not that. Um, but as we'll get to in a second, there's a lot of other quality stuff coming out of Disney plus. So let's move on to, uh, the Jeff Goldblum show. So basically Netflix 
put Jeff Goldblum in front of a camera and said, talk about random stuff and we'll see how it goes. And the results are kind of interesting. Uh, in the first episode, and that's another interesting thing about about Disney Plus is that all their content, as far as I'm aware, all their TV shows are going to be released weekly as opposed to the Netflix kind of strategy where they all release at the same time. Netflix, Disney Plus is releasing all of their stuff on a week-by-week basis, which I suppose makes sense uh, for certain content, but it does seem kind of odd that the more bingeable qual- content that you're not going to really want to follow week to week is still being released on a week to week basics basis, as you would see in something like a network television show. But the world, according to Jeff Goldblum, uh, the first episode, Jeff Goldblum talks about sneakers and kind of the world of sneakers and sneaker heads and kind of the, the on-scene parts of that that we normally just kind of put on shoes. Don't really think about the style of it at all, but there's actually this huge underground, not necessarily underground, underground but sort of on-scene uh, aspect to sneakers and shoes, and he kind of goes into that. It's it's passable. It's not anything super special. He's He's being Jeff Goldblum, and if you find that interesting, and I think there's some parts of that that are interesting to me, if you find that interesting, then I think this is something to grab onto. We we don't really know. A lot of these are going to be kind of hard to, to determine the show as a whole because it's just part of the show. You only see the first episode as of right now, so you're not going to be able to speak to it as as overall quality. But again, this with Jeff, with the world according to Jeff Goldblum, it's not going to be so much than an overarching story, like something like The Mandalorian, which we'll get to in a second, but more of each episode kind of stands by itself. So as if this first episode is indicative of the rest of the season, uh, it's going to be something that's passable. It's something that you might throw on just to watch um, on a one-off, or like you don't really have to watch all of them to get the gist of what's going on, or any overarching story or anything. It's just kind of there to be funny I don't know it's Jeff Goldblum so if you find Jeff Goldblum funny like I kind of do then it's something to watch um but there are other shows going on there's the Imagineering show which is called uh the Imagineering story which I find really fascinating I'm I'm like a huge theme park geek I love Walt Disney World and and Disneyland and the Imagineering story kind of delves into the creation of those things especially as it relates to kind of the way it originated in Walt Disney's mind. At least this first episode does. Again, it's we don't we only we don't have the rest of the story as of yet. But I I just really love that kind of. I'm not a huge fan of documentaries necessarily. Like I I I enjoy usually the documentaries that I do end up watching. But just on the whole, I don't find documentaries to be inherently interesting. There's got to be something about it that I find captivating otherwise. But I do love theme parks and I do love Walt Disney World especially compared to other theme parks. So it's it's just awesome to see kind of where that love of mine actually started. And it's it's a very well produced kind of thing because you can find th- videos on theme parks and kind of the origination of individual rides or whatever on YouTube, but they don't really have this high of a production value and I think Disney put a lot of effort into making this kind of uh look the way and as high of quality as it does and there's another thing like Disney doesn't or at least whoever made this and Disney didn't allow them to like 
it's allowed to kind of show the bad or poor aspects of the release. It's not like glamorizing everything. Like there were problems upon Disneyland's release and kind of especially when Walt Disney uh, passed away, unfortunately, uh, the kind of uncertainty about Walt Disney World's launch after after that. And so it doesn't really sugarcoat anything, but it still has this this optimism to it that I also really like and really uh, latched onto. And so I think the Imagineering show, the Imagineering story, is is a really fascinating uh, docu series that I'll be for that one for sure. I'll be interested in watching throughout as it plays throughout this first season. Um, but again, that's something that I'm able to watch all of these so quickly because there's only one episode of each of them it's not it's not something that you're going to be binging unless you're watching this a month or two or three down the line and if so i'm going to say if like you're into the binging thing if that's kind of the way that you watch tv at this point disney plus might not be something to kind of go head all in on right away uh because you're not going to be getting uh everything all at the same time and but if you wait till a couple months then all, all these, the full seasons of these particular shows will have been fully released at that point. So let's get on to the big one, The Mandalorian, which is the new Star Wars show, the first Star Wars live action show, starring Pedro Pascal as The Mandalorian. Uh, this first episode is pretty short, honestly. It's less than 40 minutes long, which is very short for a... For a TV show like this because typically you're going to be under 30 minutes or nearing the 60 minute mark depending on if you're something like you're playing on broadcast television in which case it's going to be more close to 45 minutes as opposed to an HBO show which is going to be the full 60 minutes usually or getting closer to it than this um, but f- this is definitely an interesting step forward for the Star Wars universe. I'm not sure how exactly I feel about it yet. There's a lot of threads that are set up in this first episode that are that could definitely go to some interesting places, but it's d- definitely difficult to judge it at this point. I don't really want to say how I feel either way, but aesthetically, the cinematography and score for this are both really cool. Uh, we're kind of on the edge of the galaxy for this whole thing. It's kind of like a space Western, like it's, it's a Western, but through star Wars, which I, which I find that angle interesting. Uh, but on the whole for this first episode, it's an interesting pilot. It's, it's definitely a pilot. Like it's not, it doesn't really stand on its own. It's hard to see where this might go, but I think that the threads are laid for something that could be very interesting down the line. So it's kind of difficult to talk about as far as that's concerned. Uh, but I'm definitely interested to see where the season goes. That's going to be a recurring sort of issue throughout this because we don't really have the rest of it. Because normally when Netflix drops something, it's going to be like Stranger Things and Stranger Things all drops at the same time and everyone's going to binge it in, in one day and then talk about the whole season and the whole overarching story arc of it and everything. But you're not going to be able to do that with this because it's going to be on a week-to-week basis, which I think is an interesting thing for conversations and stuff because conversations are definitely be different surrounding this because it's going to be more like Game of Thrones where you get to see one episode and then the whole internet talks about it for a whole week before you get to see the next step in the story. And I think it's an interesting move from Disney to do that because it kind of allows a show to to have more of a lasting staying power because if you have something that's released weekly, it kind of 
keeps it in the cultural consciousness where the stranger things it's like the the thing the biggest thing for one week and then after that everyone's seen it already and everyone's done talking about it so like no one is no one cares anymore at least that's kind of what it can be when you release it in the sort of binge it right now and then be done with it after that so i don't know we'll see if it works for them or not there's we we don't really know because it came out today uh from Tuesday uh the 12th but it's definitely interesting we'll see how the streaming wars kind of play out cuz you got Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu now owned by Disney uh and then Disney Plus and Hulu can be bought in a package Apple TV came out don't really know what's going on with that at all uh but it's it's definitely interesting how the streaming wars play out and how many of these new streaming services that all seem to, everyone wants to have a streaming service. Everyone's trying to launch a streaming service, but it's definitely interesting to see how many of them are actually going to be able to survive in that sort of climate. So speaking of streaming, let's move on to Netflix's The King. So The King is a movie, I think loosely based on Shakespeare. I think I've read the Shakespeare play that this is based on, which is King Henry the fifth. I think it's just Henry the fifth. Uh, but which is also based on actual reality. Uh, but this stars Timothy Chalamet as the titular king and also Robert Pattinson as uh, a guy from France and a French prince. And then Joel Edgerton as Falstaff. Uh, and Joel Edgerton is, is also the writer of this movie. And then Sean Harris, who you might know from the Mission Impossible movies, as kind of this advisor figure to the king. So, and then Thomas and Mackenzie is also in this, who uh, got her kind of big break in Leave No Trace, and which is a movie from last year that I really enjoyed. Leave No Trace is a fantastic film if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, but she also starred in Jojo Rabbit, which just came out. Uh, so she definitely seems like an up-and-comer in terms of young actresses but the king as a whole is kind of bland i mean it's got some really interesting like it's it's a medieval story so like i said last uh last bonus podcast uh, about the about midway uh just the fact that you're about a world a world war ii movie you're going to kind of have these inherent elements to that if that, that if you execute at the bare minimum level it's going to be at least passable because kind of the the genre itself is just so fascinating that it, the movies that are made inside of that genre just kind of become fascinating. So when you talk about medieval stuff, to me, that's just like something that's so fascinating with knights and, and swords and, and then like kings and everything. If you execute that at the, at just a bare minimum, regardless of story, it's going to be at least fascinating. But even the story follows suit in some ways too, because you just have this power dynamic between kingdoms that, becomes really interesting. The only problem is that a lot of this really seems to be echoes of a greater story. It doesn't really feel like Shakespeare. It feels like, or even like reality, it feels like this very bare bones story that's relying a lot on its visual design to have some sort of meaning. Because like the the bare bones here, I think are interesting. They, they seem interesting to me because like I'm seeing these kingdoms clash and, and Timothy Chalamet as, as Hal or Henry V or the King or how, however you want to call him kind of go on this journey and kind of figure out who he is in the way that he has to kind of fit into this kingdom. 
and interact with France and then his own advisors. And I think that's an interesting story. And I think that they have the basic building blocks, but they don't really have Shakespeare has is really Shakespeare's stories from a building block standpoint are all fantastic. But Shakespeare also tends to have like the colorful language and kind of the the little flourish like he's got he's like Stephen King in the way that he fleshes out his stories throughout like it's the way that he tells them rather than just the bare bones themselves and here it's kind of this interesting thing because the visual design of this I really enjoyed but I think it's the smaller intricacies of the story that just kind of fail to gain my attention and be something really any special but on the whole this is this is enjoyable for me but it is two hours and 20 minutes long which is another issue but I guess it's trying to be this war epic but it probably could have benefited from being more around the two hour 10 minute two hour mark because like again it has these bare bones but it tries to to flesh them out using techniques that might not necessarily be the te- best techniques. Like it, but it, the more int- intimate character interactions might might benefit this movie because a lot of it's just kind of like people posturing and saying, this is what I want and this is what I'm doing directly rather than kind of uh, more subtly interacting with each other. But it's not necessarily just the subtlety aspect about it. It's more of the true human emotion like because you can you don't have to be subtle with things but you have to kind of be genuine with your with your emotions and this movie seems to be like very much someone speaking through these characters these characters kind of feel like puppets kind of thrown into things and controlled from the outside to do the creator's bidding so that they will come to this conclusion this grand conclusion of the story that's exactly according to uh, the writers will, but I mean, that's kind of the way that all stories are, but you kind of see it more here. But then again, this movie was based on reality. So it's not like the writer is completely contriving it, but I think it's again, the, the writer's job, uh, to, to flesh out reality and to extrapolate that into an interesting story that's told interesting in this medium. I've talked a lot before about how Akira Kurosawa has done great Shakespeare adaptations because uh, in Ron and Throne of Blood specifically that because he knows how to use the camera to tell story and so what he does is he takes Shakespeare understands what it is at its essence and then also understands how to tell a film at its very how to how to use the medium of film to tell a story and then because he understands both of those things so well he meshes them in a way where it's like the best possible adaptation because it's not going to be exactly one-to-one with Shakespeare's plays like they're not they're not super similar like you can see the kind of you can see the bare bones but in the way those bare bones kind of manifest themselves in the more in the character interactions they they become more genuine because he's he's telling these this bare bones story in a way that fits best in the medium and I think this is something that's just something that this movie lacks that's something that most Shakespeare adaptations lack like I think I mean the Lion King is not really that similar to Hamlet at all but it kind of has the basic understanding of what Hamlet is. And then really even it's, it's saying something different than Hamlet. It's just kind of including a lot of those base elements, but the Lion King works so well because it's working in the medium, in the, in the medium of animation specifically, but also the medium of film. It's working in that in the best way possible. And I think that's kind of 
what you have to do when you're talking about uh, an adaptation of any source material, but especially Shakespeare. I mean, I think that's something that most adaptations lack. They don't. They try to tell the story one to one with the actual store with it with the actual source material. And then the only trouble there is just picking source material that translates best to the to the film. And I think that you obviously have to pick source material that that would potentially translate better. But again, even after you've picked source material that works in the medium, you still have to kind of change it and understand it in a, in a way that you can you can change it to fit and be the best visually told story. And I think this one, The King, is adequate at that. It's it's like a six out of ten. It's like perfectly adequate in almost every possible way. This is about like the bottom of my top 20 for the year. It's about to fall off. It's what it is. I mean, it's it's on Netflix. I think if you love this kind of thing, like I said last week with Midway, if you love World War II movies, if you love... This is very similar to Midway. And I'm about the same about it, like five or six out of ten. I feel about the same. They kind of function the same way. They both are part of this genre, both genres that I really enjoy, both genres that I think are usually effective. There aren't many movies in those genres that I've seen that don't really work too well, especially when they have like higher production budgets and kind of high production value. Because they kind of work within it, they they still achieve a sense of proficiency. It's just nothing special. It's not going to probably stay in my top 20 of the year, either of them, either Midway or The King. And that's fine, uh, but I think if you're looking for something on Netflix and you like medieval war movies, this is definitely something to check out. But if you don't like medieval war movies, it's probably something you can skip. That's about what it boils down to. There is another Disney Plus movie called Noel, starring Anna Kendrick and Bill Hader. It's basically a Christmas movie uh, starring Bill Hader as a Santa who doesn't really want to be Santa. And Anna Kendrick as a Anna Kendrick type that is kind of bubbly and she's your typical Christmas character. So basically they're they're both Santa's kids, but then Santa dies. And so they have to figure out the dynamics of Christmas after Santa has passed away. Um, this is basically your typical Christmas movie. Uh, Disney putting out a Christmas movie that's perfectly passable. Uh, I like Christmas movies to begin with. I just don't like the Lifetime Christmas movies sort of thing because that's getting into territory of just like being disingenuous. But these kind of fantastical Christmas movies about Santa Claus and stuff, I, I usually get into. And this this is this is one of them. And it's not something I completely hated. Like it's it's really it's really heartfelt and in, enjoyable and I, honestly pretty funny throughout uh, many parts in it. Uh, Bill Hader is awesome. I think Bill Hader is a comedic genius, and he I, he's honestly not in this nearly enough. Uh, Anna Ken, but Anna Kendrick I also find very funny, and she's she's the main star here. Um, and that and she she kind of I think she's able to hold this together for the most part. But but again, it still is following a lot of these typical Christmas stereotypes, and not really ever finding a voice of its own outside of that sort of Christmas genre. But again, this kind of goes back to the the exact same thing uh, of war movies and middle medieval movies. And like, it, this is a Christmas movie. And so it fits into that. Like, I like Christmas movies. And if they execute the genre well enough, like they're not a complete, complete waste of time and completely 
miscalculated, then it's going to grab, like, I'm going to at least enjoy it. And this is one of those that I at least enjoyed. Um, there's no like severe structural problems. If anything, like it's only, it's only real problem is just that it's kind of generic. But again, you've got Anna Kendrick and Bill Hader in your movie. So it's not going to be like super generic because those are two pretty great comedic talents that sort of bring out uh, a lot. And, and there's, that's not always the case because there's certain comedic talents that are sort of wasted in a lot of movies. Like you, you can't just put Kevin Hart in a movie and say, laugh at stuff and kind of make funny noises and expect a good movie to come out of it. Uh, this, this has that kind of basic Christmas movie structure. And then it adds Bill Hader and Anna Kendrick into it after the fact. And sort of, so then you kind of have this basic formula that is differentiated enough from its, from its, from its forebears, but including these different voices. And I think it it worked for the most part. Uh, this is not going to probably become like a, Christmas Christmas classic that you're going to watch every Christmas, but it's definitely something that you can watch this year. Like it's something that for sure you can watch and enjoy, just find a Christmas movie to put on during the season. Um, and, and it's perfectly passable as that. Um, and I think, I think most families, I don't think most people have as high of a standard as I do. And I think that this is going to be pretty, pretty, a pretty much a, cl- a crowd pleaser for the most part. And, and that's and that's kind of what this is engineered to be. It's it is kind of nice that like Disney is actually making an original property, um, even though it's kind of falling into a lot of these traps of stereotypical Christmas movie. It's still a Disney original, which we don't get too often these days. Like you get like we already talked about Lady and the Tramp, and earlier this year we had The Lion King and Aladdin and Dumbo, like all these things remaking all this stuff and just kind of like kind of wasting their their money in my opinion. Uh they're putting money into this original script as they don't I mean, I think Disney Disney seems to have a better grasp on creating original animation than they do actually creating original live action, which is kind of weird because like they've done such great work in the realm of animation. You kind of wonder why they haven't put the money into creating these live action movies. And I think that hopefully Disney plus will become a platform where they'll be able to put their money into these new sort of ideas and these new live action ideas, because I think Disney play Disney plus could be a, a great location for that. And I think just by the very nature of it being a streaming platform that they can sort of use that nature. Like Netflix ha- is able to to bring out new voices just by the fact that they don't really have to worry about necessarily having a movie make a whole bunch of money at the box office. It's more about building a catalog. And I think that Disney Plus could hopefully do something similar to that with their platform. That'll do it for this bonus episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to listen to the live program, you can go to 90.3 WRST from 7 to 8 on Saturdays. This week, we're going to be talking about Ford v. Ferrari, starring Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Tune in, and we'll see you then.